All right, students, welcome back to Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019-2020 Lecture 34. Introductory lecture on Dante's Paradiso, Cantos 18 to 21, The Spheres of Jupiter and Saturn Slides, 185 to 214. All right, let's remember where we are. We are in the sixth sphere of heaven, the third sphere of heaven outside the conical shadow of Earth, and therefore it takes shape. This is the temperate star, so-called, uh, that we call it a planet, the planet of Jupiter. And recall that the planet of Jupiter is silvery white, like a woman who has returned from blush uh, after having left Mars, which is, of course, red like a blush. And now uh, this star is whitish silver. Recall that the souls did sort of an interesting dance for us at the beginning of this. They formed letters, uh, 35 letters, which is a multiple of seven, diligitate, eucitium, qui, eudicatus, teram, uh, cherish justice, you who would judge the world, ye who would judge the world, to use uh, sort of King James uh, Bible language. And recall that that last letter, teram, uh, m, m is supposedly, it looks a bit like a human face. Uh, you, you have the ridge of the, the cheek down and then up to the nose and down again and then up the other cheek and in between those two humps you have O and that forms the Italian word Omo which means man. And so there's some connection between being a monarch, monarchia, and being a man. I'll suggest uh, an interpretation that I'll justify later with how King David is described. The better you know yourself or what a man is, the better a monarch you are. The better you understand yourself and can rule yourself and your own passions, the better you can go guide and rule the passions of others. Uh, a very fundamental and ancient argument. All right, that M then, as you notice, stylized up here, then slowly transforms into an eagle. An eagle is the symbol of, uh, it is a symbol of power, of perspective, of acuity of vision, and of leadership, because a leader must uh, fly above all. It must be at the top of the dominance hierarchy. They must be above all. And why must they be high? Why must they be in the clouds in heaven? Why must they be on a mountain, Olympus? Well, the higher you are, the more you can see that which is under you. And so acuity of vision and having the appropriate perspective, very important to being a leader. And in fact, the eagle has been uh, representative of some very major leaders, both mythological, or, or mythological, political, and individual. Now, so the eagle here, obviously we know is the symbol of Zeus and Jupiter. Zeus from the Greek tradition, Jupiter from the Roman tradition. We know that Zeus's eagle is what abducted Ganymede. In fact, we saw a dream uh, uh, envisioning that in Canto 9 of the Purgatorio. Uh, the eagle was also the symbol of imperial uh, Rome. And it was the battle standard that would have to be kissed by an enemy, uh, by an enemy uh, leader after they were defeated by the Romans at, right before they had their heads cut off. And then, of course, the bald eagle is the symbol of the United States. It is bald because it has no crown, because we as a uh, democracy have no uh, king. We are ourselves the leaders. Our minds collectively shared through our voices, through votes, are uh, what we do. That is our king. Vox populi, vox dei. So just as I said earlier, the eagle represents higher perspective because it flies very high in the sky and acuity of vision. And uh, the idea behind this is that as a ruler, you must rule on high, have a good perspective, and, um, and have acuity of vision. You must understand your people. You cannot simply imagine them for what you hope they are. You must deal with the people that you've got. And I would say that in general is just a good leadership lesson. It's often the case that a young leader that hopes to stand on their authority. I'm the leader. You need to listen to me. It's like no good leader ever uh, talked 
that way. And uh, you can imagine that you had like the Achaeans or the Spartans or the Myrmidons or some elite force of Navy SEALs under you. You're probably going to, the first time you ever lead, be leading some people pretty similar to you. And so the better a leader you are, the better you can make whoever happens to be following you. All right. This is a picture of Jupiter and his eagle. I, I used to interpret this uh, very uh, metaphysically for students, but I'll just say one thing about it. You notice there are three images of God. You say, Mr. Schmidt, I only see uh, maybe one. You see a man in front of a shining light, looks sort of like the sun, on an eagle. I'll tell you this. This is the progression of images of the God of gods in, we in the Western world. First, they were theromorphic. They were animals. And then you see them actually mixed between animals and humans. Theromorphic and anthropomorphic forms. That's in the form of the Egyptians. You remember Anubis. He has like a jackal head, but a human body. Horus, falcon head, but human body. Then with the Greeks, you get fully anthropomorphic gods. Like Zeus, looks like a big, strong dude. But then, beyond the uh, Greeks and the Romans, you get the Christian idea. Christian idea, you saw that Dante has a very different idea from, uh, think, from worshipping animals or human figures. He, he says that we ascribe hands and feet to the gods and the angels, um, but they don't actually have them. You see behind this god uh, a circle, shiny. That's far closer to the Christian idea, the Trinitarian idea, the geometric idea, the intelligent, not imaginary idea. The idea here being that uh, what a god is is too abstract to represent visually because what a god is is far more a product of the intelligence than it is the imagination. Um, which is precisely what Dante is trying to say during the course of the Paradiso. He says, you've got to put away your imagination. Stop imagining centaurs and minotaurs and things. And now we really need to think through some syllogisms, some deductions. It's almost like what the key to the success of the West has been is that we have less and less lived in our imaginations and more and more uh, used our minds to understand the principles of the world. And you say, what's the proof of that? And I say the fact that we have nuclear weapons. Um, we have the most sophisticated products of science that have ever existed. We have the internet, we have electricity, we have nuclear weapons. We obviously believe in the intellect in the West and its premacy. And, well, the things we have are because of that. That's all I wanted to say about that. In any case, the bird then speaks, and it says, and this is very odd, I and mine, but as a unity of many, the bird is made up of all the leaders. This eagle is made up of all the eagles. <laughs> this eagle is made up of all the leaders in um, this particular sphere of heaven. But as a unity of many, it means we and ours. So it says I and mine, but it's speaking for many. And so uh, just something to notice that kings traditionally say we and our, rather than I and mine, because they do not simply speak for themselves. A king as a function of a system, uh, a political system, speaks for the entirety of that system, for the entirety of the people. So the king never speaks for himself publicly, uh, or herself uh, publicly, if it happens to be a queen, but always for the unity, the body politic. And so the eagle speaks with one voice for one people, though many persons, just like a king. The king is thus a symbol himself of his people. And in fact, uh, when I was first taking a political science course at Loyola down in New Orleans, that, was, uh, that is one of the functions of the President of the United States, to be a figurehead. In fact, that is uh, often what is uh, uh, sort of, if a president is seen to have conduct on becoming a president, that is something that is attacked. What sort of role model is this person? For someone else, but that is of course but one function of a president. I think there were eight that were listed by this particular person, but that's shared between a president and the king himself. In any case, all kings or rulers there are there that are here in the Paradiso are there because of uh, a relationship of two qualities. 
that they manage to balance. Justice, which means fairness, which means having standards and upholding them for everybody always without ever changing them. But also mercy, which means making an exception for someone or for a crime or for a moment. And so as a leader, you have to, using your mind, very much balance the idea of maintaining standards, but also showing pity, mercy to people. It is a very difficult standard to maintain. Uh, in fact, you may have heard uh, uh, leaders in your own life try and maintain that standard. Uh, exception, if I make an exception for you, I'll have to make an exception for everybody. And you probably thought, that's not true. Then it wouldn't be an exception. It would be a new rule. Um, and so to make an exception for somebody is to show mercy to somebody is to not subject them to a standard for a moment. And so when to show exceptions and when to maintain a standard, can I tell you uh, when it is appropriate to do one and not the other? No, that's the whole art of governing. That's the whole art of, uh, of leading individuals. In any case, Dante then asks one of his big time questions. Is the divine justice mirrored in other realms? That means on earth. And this is an important question because he knows since... Uh, he went to Mars, uh, the most recent sphere of heaven, that he's going to be exiled. And so obviously he wants to know whether that's just or not. And so the eagle, eagle answers to him. And this is, uh, this is actually on the next slide. He who drew with compasses, and notice the geometric language here, compasses. That's what you use to make a circle uh, um, on your, your math graph paper. He who drew with compasses, that's God, the boundaries of the world, so boundaries, setting boundaries, Recall that uh, leaders set boundaries in two ways. Physical boundaries through um, actual, um, uh, uh, what, what is the word for the boundary of a country? I've forgotten it. Border. The border, yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you. The frontera. I can say it in a different language, not ours. The border, but also maintaining boundaries between people within the community. What do we call those things? We put them in the Constitution. Laws. Laws, right, exactly. So you have, uh, both of those are intangible. Both of those are set down. Are there, is there such thing as a physical uh, a boundary to a country or a physical law? I guess technically there are like some physics laws, but laws and boundaries generally come from where? Human minds. Human minds. And so understanding how to implement the laws and maintain boundaries is a human endeavor, an intelligence endeavor. In any case, he who drew with compasses the boundaries of the world and within it ordered so much, both hidden and manifest. Okay, so some of these laws are hidden. Some of them we can see. His worth could not so mark itself upon the whole of the universe that his word did not remain in its infinite excess. That, that, that's a very striking tercet. It almost makes me think that uh, Dante is saying that how God became real is by manifesting himself in the world. That something that is not made real and mixed with matter is not, is not in some way real. Uh, I think that might be perhaps going a little bit too far, but there's something very unique, very interesting being said in that tercet. The truth of that you may see by the first of the proud, this is Lucifer, who was the noblest of all creation, but could not wait for the light and fell unripened. So I say here, note the geometric language, drew, compasses, boundaries, ordered. Uh, this is, of course, the sphere of geometry, and of maintaining proportion, and therefore fairness. All right. And so it appears that every lesser nature, that would be every, every creature underneath Lucifer, which was the top creature ever made, the noblest, is too small a receptacle for that good which has no end and is its own measure. So apparently nothing that exists can receive all of the infinite goodness that uh, is God. Therefore our understanding, which must be no more than a glimmer from that mind of which everything in the universe is full. That's very interesting. Our mind is therefore a part of the divine mind, um, indicating that we have 
a piece of divinity within us, indicating that we can, to some extent, understand what is the divine nature, um, cannot of its nature be so powerful that what comes from does not seem much beyond what is visible to it. Okay, what does all this mean? All right, one, uh, two last tercets, and then we'll explain. And so in the sempiternal justice, just something for you philosophical types, sempiternal differs from eternal in that it is eternal but with a starting time in time which doesn't technically make sense. To be eternal, you can have no beginning or end. But to be simply eternal means you had a beginning, but you will have no end, which is what I imagine young people think they are. In any case, and so in the simple eternal justice, the understanding you have of the world, uh-oh, loses itself as the eye does in the sea. Oh, no, we're going to get a very dissatisfying answer here. For although near the shore it sees the bottom, in the open sea it does not. Nonetheless, the bottom is there, although the depths hide it. Okay, I, do, I know something uh, got told to us that we did not want to hear. All right, what does the eagle's response mean? Though justice was applied to the world, it is hidden. So what does that mean? Um, well, let's, let's add to this, and then I'll, I'll explain that further. Even Lucifer, the greatest being ever created, could not understand the entirety of the divine justice, obviously, because he made a decision that made him fall down into hell, which he then... Created. So, no creature that has ever existed has fully understood the justice uh, understood the justice of the divine, which means that we, as humans, not uh, super angels like Lucifer, uh, have no chance of fully understanding the justice of God. Which means what? Which means there will be things that happen to us in this world that seem unfair, <coughs> that in some way are actually fair. It means unthinkable things can happen to us, like being exiled, like being tortured, like being killed. And uh, in some way, they are part of the divine plan. But they are part of something much larger that we cannot fully grasp, fully understand. The idea here is there is a plan. You are a part of it. You cannot understand it. It is far too complex and sophisticated, but it is there. So you have to take it on what? Even though so much has been made of intelligence in the sphere, and the use of intelligence, and the laying down of boundaries, and of borders, and of laws. Ultimately, what must you rely on in order to understand this plan? It's a theological virtue. And we remember it from the moon. Anybody remember? Faith. Yeah, you just have to have faith. And uh, so ultimately, it's uh, sort of heretical as Dante comes off saying, this is a religion of intelligence. Intelligence, intelligence. You have to use your mind. You have to be rational. You have to be rational. He ultimately says, well, some things are so hyper-rational, so sophisticated, so complex, that uh, you just can't possibly understand all of them. And, uh, even though we are attempting to. Right? Like, we do study the universe. We do have physicists. We do have chemists. We do have biologists. But it's like, do we have anybody that does all of those things? Uh, it's pretty tough. Pretty tough. Uh, maybe we'll have a supercomputer Jesus God thing that we all serve at some point that can understand all things in all fairness. But uh, well, maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, I should probably say probably not, but maybe not. And, you know, sometimes Ray Kurzweil writing about the future gets me excited about AI. If you've never read him, he's a futurologist. He's very interesting. He'd be down in the inferno, according to Dante. In any case, therefore justice does exist, but humans cannot fully understand it, according to the eagle, according to Dante, the poet. So things which seem unfair happen, like the fall of man. Uh, we couldn't have understood the consequences of falling. We'll hear about that from Adam in Canto 26, why man fell, um, or Dante's exile. But in reality, they are fair. We just can't see the reason why. And so I guess the idea is you need to have faith there is a reason, or you could at least investigate and try and discover the reason why things happen. Um, question two, and so that, that's the first of, I, I think, two fairly 
dissatisfying answers. It's like, why does the world see so unjust? Why does the world seem so unjust if God made it just? And the answer is, it is just. You just can't understand how, which is uh, an unpleasant answer to receive. I I feel like it's uh, that's sort of uh, not answering the question to its fullest extent. That said, question two is this: If one has never known Christianity, how can one be judged as evil or bad and condemned to hell? I think that's a fantastic question. It's a question a lot of people. I've asked before Christians and non-Christians alike, if there were a place like heaven, and it were a place technically for Christians, and there were people who existed on earth who were not Christians, would they be uh, uh, eternally damned to hell without even having had a chance? It's sort of like a, a different version of the question of why did the pagans or the ancient Jewish people get consigned to hell even though Christianity did not exist? Um, and here's Dante's attempt at a response. Uh, you can tell me whether you think it's satisfying or not. For you said... A man is born upon the banks of the Indus, this is an Indian person, uh, not a Native American, where there is none to tell of Christ and no one to read or write about him. And all his inclination and his actions, as far as human reason sees, are good. So this is a good man who is born in India and has never heard of Christianity. He is without sin in word or deed. He's a very good man. He dies unbaptized and without faith. Where is the justice in condemning him? Is it his fault if he does not believe? It's like a good prosecutor right here, Dante's beat, I would say. And then the response is this. This is how the eagle responds to Dante. Now who are you to set up yourself to judge of matters a thousand miles away with eyes that can hardly see nine inches? And so again, the idea is that you have very limited sight as a human. You have very limited insight even into yourself and your own personal situation. Who are you to ask a question about somebody else's personal salvation if you don't even understand the mechanics behind your own personal salvation? Who are you to judge the house of another if you cannot even accurately judge your house? Who are you to judge the political system of another if you cannot accurately judge the political system of yourself? This question is far too large for you, is what the eagle is saying. He says you need a different perspective on it. You might think this is a clever and interesting question, but a much better question is, how can I be a good man? How can you be a good man? How can I rule well? where I am. He's sort of saying, like Solomon might have said, that this just is not a great thing to spend your time thinking about. You have far more important things to be focusing on, which I, I think is uh, satisfying on the one hand, okay, so maybe our minds are made to deal with smaller questions, not giant questions like these, but also dissatisfying because he's not really, again, giving us a great answer. Like, we want an answer. What is the answer? But um, I think uh, what he's trying to say is what your best teachers will say when you write something, you're like, this is the proof that God exists, or this is the proof that God doesn't exist. That's often the sort of thing students want to write about. Um, it's like, well, perhaps you need to devote yourself to a much smaller issue where you can actually make some ground. Perhaps that's a more useful thing to do. Certainly, for anyone who tries to be clever, there is a marvelous subject for questioning. So he's saying, if you're just trying to be clever, you can talk about this. If scripture were not set there to set you right, so he just says, uh, the Bible... The Bible tells you about this. So just accept that. It has the truth within it, which is, I would say, also sort of a dissatisfying answer. It's like, where in the Bible? And which part of the scripture are we supposed to interpret? And what does it say exactly? And yet, that's what it says. Um, As what I sing is to you who do not understand it, so is the eternal justice to you mortals. All right, there's the finish. There's the end to the first question right there. Um, just as we don't understand what it is he's saying to us, so do we as humans not understand the eternal justice of God? Too complicated. Okay. 
Uh, no one has ever climbed to this kingdom without belief in Christ. So you need faith, either before or after he was nailed to the cross. So the idea, he, he explicitly says it now. He says, you don't get to heaven by reasoning, by deductive logic, by trying to think through these issues. You have to have some faith that there is justice. You have to have some faith that uh, the appropriate people do get to heaven doing the appropriate thing. The idea is that if you have faith that uh, there is a plan, uh, that you will act differently than if you are faithless. And that action itself will be what gets you to where you are going. Um, which does suggest that uh, there, there is some value to your contingent will. Because if you have to have faith and then embody it accurately or correctly in order to make it to heaven, your choices do or do not matter. They do matter. And again, with all this Christian imagery and all these fantastic images being shown to us, remember the main theme, the thesis of this story. Whose fault is it where you are? Your fault or God's fault or the star's fault or someone else's fault? Your own fault. Again, all these factions, all these religions, all these uh, different countries, all these, all these vices, uh, all these stars influencing us. For all of that, Dante is saying that it's up to you to make your choices. And your choices do matter. And they matter more than anything. And I think that is a very powerful perspective. Your choices matter more than anything. Rather than the opposite. Alright. So regardless of how it seems, only the just, regardless of where they are from, or what time, make it to heaven. And Dante will soon prove this by including Hebrews, uh, Christians, um, and even fictional characters uh, among, among the souls in the eagle. You have to have, according to him, faith. Alright. The eagle then commands Dante to watch the part of me which sees. That means the eye, obviously. That's the part which sees. Here are the highest ranking among them all, the kings, the just rulers in heaven, the counselors. And the one top king is in the pupil, that thing which focuses. That's why you all are called pupils, because you're supposed to focus all day and see. And then the other five are around the eyebrow, like souls circling God in heaven, or stu students circling or learning a concept, uh, zeroing in on something. Let's talk about who these people are. All right, and why are the most important... Oh, yeah, yeah. And why is it the fact that the most important people or the best exemplars of leadership are around the eye. Why aren't they around the talents? Why aren't they around the wings? Why aren't they around the beak? Why aren't they the tongue of the people? Kind of like how uh, Odysseus was like a living tongue down in uh, the Inferno, the flame like a tongue. Well, medieval, believable, medieval people believed, and even Renaissance people believed this, because there's a reference to this in Orlando Furioso from the 16th century, that eagles could stare into the sun without being blinded. Well, that's like sort of a metaphor for what Dante's doing right now, staring into the eternal light of heaven without being blinded. Though he will be blinded by trying to stare into the light in Canto 25. He's going to look at St. John and be like, does he have a body? Does he have a body that's going to be like staring at the sun for too long? And then, oh, he can't see. Oh. But then he's going to have to talk about love, which apparently love is something that you see with your third eye, your intellect, your intelligence. That's why the third eye is often on your forehead, because your brain is behind. In any case, uh, like a man, slash Dante, is able to see the truth of God without being blinded is a correlate to medieval people, uh, or rather eagles, staring into the sun without being blinded. And so the idea behind this being is that eagles have excellent sight, just as rulers must be perceptive. They must have excellent sight. To be perceptive doesn't necessarily mean that your physical eyes move well. It means that you are so acute of vision that your mind is so sharp. You see things that other people don't. You pick up 
on things that other people uh, don't. That doesn't mean that your eyes are 20-20. That means that your mind is sharp and focused. In any case, uh, rulers must be perceptive to understand and then to govern their people. They need to understand the emotions of their people, their emotions of their people, the goals of their people, the unifying forces of their people. They need to understand people. They need to understand themselves. And like I said, Dante will actually blind himself by looking at uh, a soul bright like the sun. It's St. John in Canto 25, lines 118 and 123. Here are these lines. Uh, like one who gazes and does all he can to see the sun, he's apparently no eagle, when it is in part eclipsed, and by looking in the end ceases to see it. That's so funny. You, have y'all ever seen like a solar eclipse and like you had some teachers that were like, don't look at it directly. You need to look through like uh, some sort of tube or something like that because it will blind you. Well, that's being referenced here. So did I with this last flame until I heard a voice. Why did you blind yourself to see something which has no place here? Uh, he's trying to see if uh, St. John had a body like, supposedly there are two uh, people who were assumed into heaven in the Christian tradition who had bodies. One is Jesus. One is uh, Mary. And that actually happened in the 20th century. Um, in the Hebrew tradition, there's a guy named Elijah who rode a flaming chariot up to heaven too. So a few figures supposedly got to keep their bodies in heaven. Why that's important is that, remember all these sort of lights in heaven, they miss their bodies. They wish they had their bodies. And this will come up twice in Canto 25 with St. John's. Or with St. John. Excuse me. St. John's is where I went for graduate school. In any case, leaders must shine a light on their people. See them for who they actually are and for all the darkness and sin included in their natures and in their actions. Uh, king David, who is the pupil of the eye of this eagle, is such a king. And supposedly he knows the merit of song. I, I find that such an interesting bit to include in there. Knows the merit of song uh, because he, like Dante, was a poet. He was a singer. He played the lyre. He played a harp. And uh, this reminds us also of Odysseus, who was himself a storyteller. He wasn't himself a musician, Achilleus was, we know. But Odysseus, you recall, when he was amongst the Phaeacians, he heard three stories on the harp, on the lyre, from uh, Demodocus, um, their singer, including the, uh, the very famous story of Ares and Aphrodite, and their, uh, their cheating at Hephaestus' expense. Um, remember that Odysseus gave the pork tenderloin, the finest piece of meat, to the, uh, the Phaeacian singer. And so it's almost like there's a, uh, if you think about music as harmony embodied, the ultimate attribute for a king to have is to pursue harmony, to observe harmony, what makes things harmonious, and then to pursue that harmoniousness. It's almost like what a leader is, is the conductor of a symphony. They don't themselves play an instrument, they don't themselves do a job, but they make sure that everybody can do their jobs. Um, by maintaining boundaries between them. They make sure that everything works in uh, concord with each other, in perfect harmony. I, I think that's a, a beautiful idea. You're like the conductor of a symphony if you're a very good leader. It's almost like you're doing nothing, and yet you're doing something of utmost importance. Have you ever thought that when you saw the conductor? You're like, that looks like an easy job. You're not even playing an instrument. You just kind of move your hand a couple times, and then you look at this person, and then you kind of uh, bow, and people clap like, yeah, 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 it does sort of look like that. But apparently that's what good leadership is. And I, I, I would not disagree with that. Insofar as it was the effect of his own counsel, this is saying, being said of David, by the reward it was proportionate. All right. So not only is his eye for music, his eye for harmonious what makes him a good leader, it is, you see, not his force, not his strength, not his power that is the key to his success, but his, the effect of his own counsel. Counsel. His counseling other people, his thinking, his advice that he gives. It is his ability 
to uh, think through solutions that makes him a great leader. His rank comes from his, and I know I've been saying this word a lot, counsel. Like Odysseus, uh, like a good judge, like King Minos, who is down amongst uh, the damned. And so here we see an idea of proportion in judgment, fairness, of setting proper boundaries being what is most important to a king. It's almost like you're hands-off, which is why I think the eagle is also an excellent symbol, because the eagle in the sky is something that you can't touch. It's simply something you can see, unless it uh, has to dive bomb and try and attack you, uh, which probably happen if, like, say, you broke the law. Interesting. Now, who are these other five kings and judges who are around the eyebrow of the eagle? I'll tell you uh, who they are, and I'll give you one interesting fact about each. All right, Emperor Trajan. I'm actually going to give you uh, two interesting facts about him. We saw him in Purgatory 010 as a piece of representative art of being humble. And remember what that art showed. It showed him helping a widow avenge her son. And so he was an image of humility. And so to be humble is an important aspect to being a king. Also notice that Trajan was himself uh, a pagan. He was a Roman. He was a Roman emperor. Now, uh, that's very much not Christian. We'll talk about how he made it to heaven in a second. It is probably the most interesting story you'll hear all, all year. And uh, if you hear a more interesting story, you have a very interesting life. Uh, the second guy, King Hezekiah of Judah. Of Judah, that means uh, Jewish. He was, an, he was an Israelite. Uh, technically, Judah is the southern kingdom. Uh, and so, uh, not, not, he, would be, uh, he would be technically Jewish, not is, Israelite. But um, he had 15 extra years added to his life because he was so just, so fair. 15 years. And I wonder if that's supposed to be a metaphor for the better and kinder or uh, fairer you live, the, lo the longer you will end up living. Um, in any case, Emperor Constantine. Now, it's so interesting that Emperor Constantine is here. Because we know, from Dante's perspective, that Constantine has made two major errors, or made two major errors during his life. 324, he moved the capital of Rome from the city of Rome to Constantinople, moved it east against the path of the heavens. Justinian said, bad thing back in Canto Six of the Paradiso. Also, we know that in 325, uh, he, he made the donation of uh, lands to the church, the Western Empire to, uh, of Rome to the church, and that that was a major mistake. And yet still, uh, he makes it up to heaven. The idea that Dante has here is that even though the effects of his actions were terrible, his intentions were good. And so the road to hell truly is paved uh, with good intentions in this case, and yet Constantine makes it to heaven, though he makes the world sort of go to hell. And we'll have a, we'll have a, and here's, the, here's actually the quote about that. He now knows that the evil derived from his good deed is not hurtful to him, although thereby the world is destroyed. He did a good deed, and yet it resulted in evil, and yet he did not cause that evil because he did not intend the evil. The evil simply happened. Um, or even if he is the author of something evil, his intent was good. And so again, this is sort of a complicated question. He is not himself punished for what he did, but everybody who lives after him is, and yet he still makes it to heaven. Um, very broad-minded of uh, Dante Heron. Constantine is also very interesting here because obviously he was a pagan. He was a Roman emperor, but he converted to Christianity. Alright, William II of Pontville. This is the Norman William II. His, uh, the only reasons I include him are, well, there are two. He was, uh, his reign was marked equally by acts of piety and justice. He, he was very faithful, pious. Pious is the word that's used to describe Aeneas. Pious Aeneas. Um, and uh, also just. But that uh, two characters that we've heard about uh, several times, Charles and Frederick are poor substitutes. That's Charles II, the father of Charles Martel, 
who he met down in uh, Venus. And then Frederick II, who was the father of Manfred. Remember Frederick II, we saw down among, in uh, Canto 12, amongst the violent and boiling blood uh, tyrants. And um, his son Manfred, we saw amongst the excommunicated, uh, or the late repentant by uh, violence. He was himself excommunicated twice. In any case, this William II, much better leader than that Charles II and that Frederick II. And then we see the most interesting character. His name is Riffius. Riffius comes from the Aeneid. Uh, book 2. He is one of the characters that fights alongside Aeneas in the Battle for Troy and then dies. And it says of him that he was first among the Teucrians, it says Teucrians there, for justice. Uh, but the gods thought otherwise. Dis aliter nisum. Very famous line there. But the gods thought otherwise. And yet, uh, it seems that Virgil was wrong. Because it, apparently the god thought, yes, he was the chief amongst justice, because where is he now, obviously? In heaven. And so, here's a difficult theological question for you. Why is it that Riffius, the fictional character from the mind of uh, Virgil, is in heaven, and yet Virgil is in hell? There's a question I would very much like to talk about uh, in seminar. But the idea is that Riffius is himself an idea, an idea of justice, and so he belongs amongst the just, even though we have very little uh, information about him. Now, <clears throat> A sub-question. <clears throat> How can Trajan, who is a pagan, and Riffius, who is a pagan, a fictional pagan at that, be in heaven if they were not Christian? Dante wonders. But does not explicitly say, because the eagle reads his mind. Recall that sometimes people will read his mind. And just keep in mind that he, like Glaucus, is a mind amongst a large mind. He is like a drop of water in the ocean right now. And so all his thoughts are totally vulnerable, totally exposed to these other uh, components of this super mind. And so the eagle responds. They did not leave their bodies, as you think, as Gentiles, that means uh, non-Christians, pagans as I often say, but Christians with firm faith in the feet which were to suffer or had suffered. So that's very weird. Somehow Riffius, a fictional character from the Aeneid, died as a Christian during the sacking of Troy by the Achaeans. Okay, very odd. And the Emperor Trajan, who very much died as a uh, Roman pagan, uh, died somehow with the faith of a Christian. How, how did that happen? All right, here's the interesting story I promised I would tell you. Pope Gregory, supposedly like a necromancer, which is somebody that summons people from the dead, summoned the Emperor Trajan from the dead in order to baptize him Christian so that he could then die as a Christian. And that is a medieval story that Dante believes and includes in this account here. The idea being that Trajan died a physical death, was raised from the dead, baptized, in order to be Christian, then died as a Christian and went to heaven. Isn't that a funny story? That's a pretty weird story. Would you believe that story if I said that? Probably not. In any case, that is the story, and that is why he is in heaven here. <coughs> now, son of Rephius, uh, you have to make a slightly more difficult argument for him. The other, by that grace which mounts up from so deep a spring that no eye ever pierced so far as to catch sight of the first wave, this is again talking about the justice of God and how deep it is, how our eyes can only go through the shallows of water but not down into its depths, um, the ineffability topos there, put all his love below upon justice, so that from grace to grace God opened up his eyes to our future redemption. So he seems, he's like Cato because of his uh, love of justice. And yet we will see with Cato, it was his embodiment of the four cardinal virtues that get him into heaven. We'll see with Riffius, it's actually an embodiment of the three theological ones. And so he's actually in a higher place 
in heaven. Um, but not Va Virgil. But not Virgil at all. As one who holds a candle behind him. So we see Cato. We see Riffius, who is a creation of Virgil. But we, do, we see no Virgil. Um, and so, uh, 20, 127 to 129, we see that the three ladies that had the effect of a baptism on Riffius are the three holy virtues. They are faith, hope, and love. Because he lived in such a way. And so, I want you to be clever here. I want you to be astute. I want you to be perceptive. I want you to show your acuity of vision. Because here is an answer to uh, Dante's second question. How is it that somebody who's never heard of Christianity can make it into heaven? Well, that's being answered here, right? Without being explicitly answered. This is a non-Christian who made it to heaven. How did he do it? By knowing the name of Christ? By like, doing miracles? By being merciful? No, none of that. Uh, uh, not by knowing his uh, psalms. He embodied the three holy virtues. Do you even need to know about a religion called Christianity to be faithful, hopeful, and to show charity to those around you? The idea that Dante has is, no. He has an idea that comes from Tertullian, who says, anima naturaliter Christiania. He says the soul is naturally Christian. He says that to act in a Christian way is natural to people. You do not need to hear the Old Testament or anything in it, or the New Testament, in order to act right. You simply need to act on uh, what you think is best. It is literally what Dante is saying, which is perhaps the most egalitarian perspective you can possibly have, because it means that who can get into heaven according to him? Everyone. Even imaginary characters from pagan literature can make it to heaven. And so uh, you just have to act right. And uh, uh, I suppose the debate will start with what is acting right and what is believing the right thing. Sure. Friends, uh, sure, I think it's a lot more complicated than it's uh, portrayed here, but it, it is possible. And so Dante is not being exclusivist, but rather inclusivist here, um, which, uh, given the fact that he has given a very unique opportunity amongst humans to go to heaven twice, not just once, uh, is, I, I think, very uh, uh, generous of him. All right, conclusion. With an admonition about predestination and the limitations of human judgment. All right, so we've been asking a lot about contingency and absolute will and how we can have a fate or a destiny and still make our own choices. And again, we're going to have one of those little dissatisfying uh, admonitions. That's warnings. Predestination. Oh, how far away is your root? So underneath the ground, hard to see. From the sight of all those who do not see the primal cause entirely. And that's all of us because we don't see the entirety of creation of reality all at once ever. And you mortals... Hold yourselves back from giving judgment, for we who see God do not yet know who all the elect are. So apparently the souls in heaven who see much more than uh, we do down on earth because of their much higher eagle-like perspective, even they don't know everybody who's going to make it into heaven because your choices down on heaven apparently, or down on earth, apparently matter or do not matter. They do matter, right? And this deficiency is sweet to us because in this good, our own good is refined. We want whatever is God's will. They say, that's good. We're okay not knowing everything. Because we want to see people make the right choices and make it uphill without knowing that they would have beforehand. That gives us great pleasure. I think that's why we watch sports, right? Um, because you want to see something amazing happen in front of you that you didn't expect. You want to see something unexpected and incredible happen. You'll settle for something unexpected and terrible. But that's not really the thing you usually uh, want to see uh, most. In any case... So, to make my limited sight clear, I was given by that divine image this sweet, sweet medicine. Not even the souls in heaven know the whole future. Never think one's fate is absolutely certain. Like Bernetto Latini, who thought everything was written in the stars, already set 
already, so your personal actions and decisions don't matter. And then he concludes, uh, the, the eagle, with an analogy of a singer being accompanied by a gifted lutenist. That's somebody who's playing a lute. That's like a, an oblong ukulele. Um, and so the idea is one of harmony. That the, the greatest leader is one that, um, that uh, how do I say this? Sings in harmony with the person playing a musical instrument. That would be their civilization, their society. Is that what the art of leading is? To promote heavenly harmony or peace? Till next time.